Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. that value is actually you know, added to a company. We sometimes assume we have the playbook to answer a question like that. And well, for many of us, this is the goal of our jobs as investors or leaders. But of course, like everything, it's quite dynamic. In this deep dive on leadership with Jennifer Salopak, we explore value much more. What might be next beyond the pyramid structure of business organizations? What the new career goals may be and how they would be facilitated and managed to create lasting value. Also in this podcast, we offer a glimpse at a new format. We gave Jen a sneak peek at the other leadership podcasts in this series. So when we joined, we were all able to riff off of those contributions and spend a little more time with the important ideas that came from the conversations with Lisa Baird and Matthias Holwich. So it's a new thing, and I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to throw another thread into this, Jen. Yes. Um, which I'm going uh, I'm going to be writing a lot about. So something's okay. striking me in terms of leadership, and particularly leadership meets the eyes of the capital markets. I think the capital markets, which aren't really good at understanding humans, they really aren't. Yeah. In fact, I, I remember when Bryn was raising to my awareness, like, is, like human resources, like what a stupid name. Like that's a great <laughs> name if you're, if you're working at like the widgets. heart of Wall Street. If you're working and, with widgets, yeah. And I was even thinking, Eamon wants to go into labor law. Even the phrase labor, mm. it's like, it's an input, you know? It's an input, it's mm. an input. And the orientation I think has been over the past, I had a conversation with someone uh, uh, two, three weeks ago that when you get further and further away from starvation, like really away from starvation. And if we went back to like the 1850s, a lot of the people in the United States, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. There was no discussion about national health insurance. It was like people were in survival mode. Mm-hmm. That as you, as you get further and further away, a generation or two or three away from that, all of a sudden those elements of Maslow's hierarchy become entertainment. You know, and we have mm-hmm. island kitchens and, and all that. But it's not just the people at the top of the economic pyramid. When you get that level of prosperity, then people can start to feel bad if they don't have the latest version of like Mario games and they can't go on a trip mm-hmm. to Europe. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't say that to minimize where I am coming from is in the last, we were talking about this earlier. It, we talk about the things that were going, uh, trends that were happening before the pandemic that seem to have accelerated. And we have this thought that people stopped, started doing reflecting about the whole of their life from a place that in many parts of the world that didn't have to do with start like getting away from starvation, that they had more choices than they thought. They're rethinking the number of people switching jobs or resigning or effing it or whatever it is, is growing drastically. In China, you have this kind of lay flat derogatory, lay flat 
um, idea that the younger people like have a moral hazard issue. They don't care. They just lay flat. They're not working as hard as the last generation. And this is really troubling to people. But when you mm -hmm. get to a certain level of, I got what I need, and you can't convince people that their bucket list should keep them going like this. You can't count on the labor force, labor force, the worker bees to just be worker bees the way they used to be. And we're seeing in this in the trucking industry right now, where you had problem filling those jobs before the pandemic. And now we have like this crisis where President Biden said he's going to consider bringing in the National Guard, which got was very confusing because that's not his call anyway. <laughs> it's, it's a state by state. But he's, they asked him yesterday, would you consider bringing in the National Guard to this supply issue of the, the, no one's driving trucks? And he's like, yes, absolutely. Well, that's pretty telling that maybe this reorientation and spiritual journey and spiritual tourism and profit and purpose and meaning isn't just a thing that you know us rich people can afford but if we assume that the the bottom of the ecosystem that you know does the worker bee stuff in society is also rethinking everything down to school bus drivers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a major assumption that we used to just say people are economically motivated they have to have the job boom, boom, boom. the interpretation is it's all about moral hazard which i'm sure there's tons of moral hazard in this as well but we were seeing a movement through society at this lower level of economic status, that they're kind of starting to think about what they were willing and not willing to do and have been over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know where yeah, I, I go it's... with that, but as a leader thinking about, okay, what, what do we do with that? Do we just automate more stuff? Because you can't, you know, automating trucks is gonna pick up. This is a stimulus for automation of long haul trucks, no question. Or how do you make it a place that people want to be? I'll stop. I'll be quiet. And we can go in a totally different direction too. Which might be I kind of like where you were um, thinking about the, the changes because where I first started noticing a major change in the um, resource space for an entity, it would not, we won't call it human or labor, but just the resource is with millennials, the idea of millennials entering the workforce and their ideas about work perhaps should even be written in quotation marks work. Um, I found deeply troubling, to be honest, not not as an employer, because there were challenges that way, but as as a society, you know, the values. Um, I read something you just sent recently that was so great to point out values versus. Uh, anyway, culture. Culture. Yes. So, and I was disheartened by that because so much of um, work in the markets and what is what shareholders depend upon is the, are certain assumptions, underpinnings, foundational elements that push an entity forward that mitigate risk that, you know, are, you know, in the background of everyone's consideration about how value is created. And so I found that, oh my gosh, this is never going to work. We, we couldn't possibly change enough to accommodate millennials, that millennial, again, I'm generalizing, unfortunately, I'm generalizing, but that approach to work, I just couldn't envision how it would be sustainable or how, how companies would change to make what, that viable. Well, what do you mean by that vision of work when you get very specific? 
Like, what is the well, thing like, that has you uh, concerned? Like, like, can we do this? Oh, um, selectivity of work. I will work today. I will not work tomorrow. Uh, I will work in my office uh, on Tuesdays from three to four. I will work from home on Fridays, 11 until one. Uh, I would like to take a break, a paid break from work for this period of time, but I would like to have the job security to come back at this period of time. You know, this, these sorts of variables, all nice to have. I, I do not want to pay for insurance. I'm young. I am uh, invincible. I don't require insurance. Why should I help someone else pay for their insurance? You know, they, I really found a lot of challenging uh, challenges to sort of uh, systems that were in place. And, and then, and, and, and you uh, did some great work where you brought in panels of millennials. Uh, I think you refer to them as digital natives. I'm using the word millennials. But you know that was so interesting. And some of them even admitted it at the end. There was not 100% honesty in everything that was being espoused by this group. It wasn't 100% authentic. It was driven by their digital uh, lives and what they heard, and then they were putting it forward. And if you really pushed more deeply and challenged, like on brand affinity, or um, I remember one particular participant rejected entirely that he even was influenced at all, ever in his mm -hmm. life. By I remember that. I remember, remember it. Well. And then, yes. well, I don't know, he was wearing sneakers or I don't know yeah. somehow. He pulled out his iPhone and, you know, so good for him. But in that in that conversation, a couple of things uh, happened as well. In one, in about three groups, one time, I decided to come into this space and ask a survey question, and the I had two survey questions. One: How many of you would be disappointed if you weren't married by the age of thirty-five? Almost no one put up their hands. And then I said: How many of you would be disappointed if you didn't have children by the age of forty? And almost all of them put up their hands. So those are different like that those two th ideas are separated, that, that mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of change even in the structure of what a family constitutes, all those things that go yes. into arguably way more freedom in your decisions about, you know, I'll just like this and I want to work then I work if you're not putting food on the table. Well, this relates yeah, you don't to- You don't have that, oh, yes, go ahead. I think this relates to another thing we've been talking about with the generations as a problematic category um, artificially created by marketers, you know, long ago. And that if you're feeding in, you know, there's a feedback loop, there must be of, um, here's what millennials think. Therefore the millennials think and act that way to some extent, like you were saying, they're saying a bit of what they think they are supposed to say when you're young and someone grows up. I remember this being part of Gen X. That was when it seemed like adults were freaking out about what Gen X was all about. And you start to believe it. Oh, all these grown-ups and academics are saying that this is what our generation is like. I'm a part of that. There must be some of that in me. I don't know. This is what they're saying. It's to debunk the idea of generation is a really interesting thing. And when we have globalization and connectivity and social media and all these different ways that we form our identities now, it may not be as age location based as we think. And I'm going to add into this. So we saw one of the things we started picking up about 20, 25 years ago was older people no longer were okay being elderly. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to move into elderly. They were going to keep their relevance. Um, you're in the fashion, a uh, part of what you do, Jen, is in the fashion industry. Moms were starting to dress like their daughters. 
there was the image of the quintessential grandmother with the cookies and the scape and the gray hair. It's like, no, 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 not for this generation. So we could point at the millennials and go, oh, they just don't get it. But we've kind of been in this act as well. And if anything, I think what's happening with the millennials is spreading northwards of like, oh, it's so cool that my son can like, you know, work for Montana because his company during this bent them and they're now they're this. And, you know, maybe I will too. Or what's my version of that? Mm-hmm. So I think if, if I think that it, is happening in millennials, this desire for flexibility and autonomy, sometimes the debt to the detriment of the well-being of the company and the control of the company to control the inputs and labor and HR and stuff like that seems to be at least morphing. I totally agree. And I, I have um, great optimism about Gen Z. I really see like the impact of Gen Z on the baby boomers, that sort of construct. You're right, Pip. There's ownership there in terms of making it so place dependent. Your success in your career is dependent on turning on the lights and turning them off when you leave and someone seeing you do that. And the person that sees you do that is, the, is a person with tenure at the organization, not necessarily the person who has made the greatest contribution to the organization. And I kind of love how this next younger group of professionals who did, who did prioritize their education and, do, and who do have career goals and ambitions really prioritizing things in a way that I find I respect. And they, I'm loving how they are not afraid to speak up about what they need, what their boundaries are, but they, to me, seem to be doing it in a way that is respectful to the culture, the community that they work within, their peers and their uh, superiors. Uh, And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. I'm learning from it. And it gives us all a freedom to your point. Yes, it's nice to work at home. Uh, There's a lot of productivity that can be derived from that. And I think that corporate America, you know, my background is in consulting for part of my career. And my work was dependent on working anywhere, a plane, a a phone booth, a car, uh, every minute had to count, you were responsible for that. So I think you know, that those firms were perhaps a little bit ahead of the curve because of the nature of, of the enterprise and the nature of the service. What questions would you be asking management teams to see if they can flow with this change as opposed to deny it's happening and ultimately get themselves in more trouble perhaps by denying that this, like this wave is gonna hit the shore? I would ask them what, um, sort of what tools that they are uh, creating, developing, investing in that enables this sort of distributed work. I don't want to say workforce, but allows work to be distributed. And I, I did ask that one time of someone that I worked with, a peer of mine, and he told me he did not believe in that. He didn't think the employees could be trusted. He, he held the title of head of human resources. He did not think that the employees could be trusted to be to not be present. And I said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I want to show you what happened overnight last night with this group of employees, you know. And um, I think it's that sort of mindset of how can we can how we can enable work, people to contribute. And how we, uh, I would also want to know how the organization structure itself 
might need to change to enable it. So the idea of scale within the organization structure, I'm really starting to rethink that. Um, you know, say, when say I say more learned, about that, yeah, say more. Well, the idea of the pyramid um, is has an assumption of being, you know, the most risk averse, uh, the the way to fund the or the labor force in an organization. And, you know, as you ascend through the pyramid, higher is better, more money, you know, more success. But the truth is now that we're having fewer entrants to the lower levels of the pyramid, I think it's necessary to change that. And we can also see many examples of where the top of the pyramid is arguably way overfunded. Um, even just leave CEO compensation aside, but just under, even underneath that, is all that really creating so much value for the enterprise and the shareholders? A you know, huge question mark there. And what if we, what, what if we diffused some of that funding lower, and really created career paths and enriching experiences that weren't linear, in the confines of a pyramid, but maybe it has a completely different shape, and that you didn't devalue someone's contribution just because he or she maybe did not have an ascension goal in their participation with the company. Perhaps they have a creativity goal or a value creation goal or, or I don't know, whatever it is. Hmm. But I think it's time to think about, you know, how value is added to a company in, in all sorts of different ways. I sort of saw about 25 years ago, there's this attraction to um, flat organizations. And I kind of looked at the flat organization was a rebellious response to hierarchy, not wisdom based unto itself. There was no magic in flat. You still have to hire great people and they have to fit whatever the heck you're trying to do. So let's assume that we do that. Okay, great. So, but now I think it's more, you're going to have to figure out what actually will form to serve to create the value for the clients and the customers. It can't be a personal journey. It can't be rebelliousness. It can't be, we owe it to the millennials. It can't be, well, the senior people know what they're talking about. We need to kind of break through a lot of those things in order to be effective right now. And so maybe the same questions come back to what is your agility as an organization across the next five years to shift the organizational structure? This is a John Dillon question. Like he always says, CEO's job is to reshape the organization for five years from now. Is that something that goes through your mind, Jen? Absolutely. And I don't think it means, I love how you bring up that contrast with the flat organization. It doesn't mean that leadership is abandoned or not, not a critical success factor in the organization and the accountability for that leadership. But it does mean that there are many ways to contribute. And I think it's a responsibility um, of the leadership to envision what this can be. It's less convenient. It's less standardized. It's less predictable but um, it shouldn't be age-based and it can be almost function-based or um, uh, task-based or tool, you know, you don't, it doesn't need to be prescriptive in terms of thinking of dated kind of um, modes of thought about a corporate structure and a career trajectory within that structure. Mm -hmm. It seems like the, the key innovation for our time. Is yeah. Like, Yes, I, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but a, a favorite organization of mine, which I greatly benefited from in my career, and I learned, I'm grateful to them, but the, the motto, the culture was up or out. 
it, it was linear. If you participated, you did the work and you advanced or you did not. And if you did not, then it, it, it wasn't terrible. It could mean that you had a great job at a client or you might have chosen to depart to work in industry, but um, that lifeblood of the firm had a lot of positive aspects, but also created a, a dearth in other areas of the business, which now that same firm has really come 360 on how it thinks about that and what it needs to drive its success and all these different. What did they need to do to go 360? That's really cool. Cause usually people will put something up on a PowerPoint. We need to go 360. And that's pretty cool if they even admit that, but how did it actually happen, Jen? I think two things, Pip. One, there were some compliance changes that caused them to have to rethink the business in its totality, segment by business segment. And there were also some new competitive forces that came in, other people entering the markets of this firm that caused the firm to say, oh boy, if we wanna play in this market, these other firms are structured this way and we need to acknowledge this is a services business I participate. We need to acknowledge how we're going to participate in this type of business model. And instead of us taking our model and forcing it on this, we need to look at it from the other side and say, no, this is a great market share opportunity for us. We have to adapt. So an, an example of the adaptation is in terms of market share growth. In the past, this firm would rely on its senior on the partners of the firm to generate business. But what it was found is that the partners actually were also busy doing work and monitoring the work and being responsible for the quality of the work and the risk management associated with the work. So it made sense to add a whole new position class, which was called a different title, a director or executive director or senior director that would help with networking and identifying and cultivating market share growth opportunities. And it worked in tandem and in partnership with the actual delivery of the service in a lovely way. So the outside, oh, go ahead, Bryn. There's an interesting parallel, I think, um, when you have this up and out or very hierarchical model, uh, we get mixed up on what it takes, what each role takes. That's such a helpful example because we have one in um, the investment management industry, which is to move up so to speak, usually move, most firms are structured, you move from analyst to some sort of portfolio manager position when they are in reality, usually totally different skill sets. And so it's almost like stepping back and saying, what does each role entail? And what are the skill sets mm. that makes room for growth on different axes rather than just the vertical linear up or out? Yeah, that's so resonates. Um, that resonates so th because you were both an analyst and a portfolio manager. But... Yeah, I was kind of a super uh, wunderkind <laughs> as a journalist, <laughs> yeah. unable to accomplish much of anything. I think that's why it resonates. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I was- No, but I think that's either. a good point because like in, um, in the apparel industry, which is near and dear to my heart, there's always been a negative bias toward those who have great skills on the analytical side versus those who are more right brain oriented and oh, can deliver creativity to the business uh, are favored and, mm -hmm. and uh, lauded, you know, worshiped. Both are absolutely integral to the success, not just on the product side, but also on the branding and the marketing side. And I think that now is a time where we have the opportunity to rethink 
friend, to your point, those functional contributions and how they actually are great partners for one another. And one is better as the result of the relationship with the other, not, you know, each one left to its own would never achieve the best result for the company or the shareholders or the brand. Jen, that leads me into uh, a question that, oh my gosh, I think you'll have such a perspective on. So the apparel industry, the fashion industry for years and years and years, was almost anti-data, meaning people who were buyers had to make these decisions, like, I think, like six months in advance or nine months in advance. And now, because of people like Zara and H&M, the, the game, I think, has changed to um, so much more available data. How, what have you noticed in the move from art to like forced compulsory data inclusion, otherwise you're clearly gonna lose. Your you know, inventories are gonna blow up, the sales are gonna blow up. What has helped some companies make that transition really good and maybe others haven't? Because this is happening in every industry and we're really sort of just at the start of AI, let's say. I would say that almost the pendulum has swung too far the other way uh, toward the data side. And that if you, um, there's a temptation to ignore the art for, in favor of the predictability of the science, the comfort of the science, the familiarity of the algorithm or the formula, except that the, the business is serving human beings who really can't even tell you what they want until they see it. And so I think the companies that are doing it really well are, gaining knowledge and insight from the data, but they're not over relying on it. And they didn't allow it to truncate their creative processes and their, their thirst for creativity and development on the art side, so that they're always bringing newness. They're always testing. But what they have done is use the information to shorten the lead time that you mentioned because sourcing, and even now post COVID, the burden is greater on the lead times because of the supply chain. Uh, challenges that exist today. But to be quicker in and out of the market, to be quicker in development, to be able to test something and then follow it on, and then infuse that into the ERP system throughout the organization, that's what I think is really important and would give a company the best footing in the marketplace. It's almost this balance of understanding with wisdom, how and where to interweave human computer interaction, so to speak. Yes. But it's not, a, yes. it's not a steady stream. Sometimes you need more of this, sometimes you need less of that, and to be artful in understanding that. Precisely, and then as you both know, AI is wonderful, but it's, with all respect, limited because it's based on the inputs that were known or given to the algorithm. And there are those that are unknown and new that haven't even been developed yet. And I think we have to take care not to think that the story has reached its conclusion because the algorithm is finished. And I find that the um, reliance on Facebook for marketing and new customer acquisition has actually exacerbated that. And I'm looking forward as Facebook is, uh, the truth about Facebook is coming forward now I'm really looking forward to brands and companies becoming more independent again on getting to know their customer more directly, you know, being in charge of the algorithm or understanding what influences that and change over time rather than just writing a check to Facebook, for example. 
So Jen, we did something that we haven't done before. We gave you a sneak peek on some podcasts in this series on leadership that haven't come out yet as we, as we are talking today. And we did that because we were just really interested in your view overall on anything that came up in those with Lisa Baird and Matthias Holich. And I just would love to open it up to you. Was there anything that grabbed your attention um, negatively or positively, something you agree with strongly or have been captivated by that we could flush out a little bit together here? So I have not stopped thinking about when Lisa Baird said that in looking for new talent, that she was rejecting the prior experience. And I know she wasn't saying that in an absolute sense, but wow, that was incredible to me. And also so optimistic to say that we're looking for people who can react to situations. And it's much harder to recruit that way because it's not formulaic. You really have to get into maybe different testing and different ways of, get, of getting to know executives so that you would understand how their personal construct and their um, portfolio of experiences would, would create value for the organization. But I love that because I feel that it takes away the um, hierarchy or assumptions about hierarchy and instead goes back to what we were talking about before where it focuses on what is needed, what will create value, what will add to the culture, what will enable uh, the biggest percentage of this group of employees to thrive. So I love that and I'm going to think more about that. And I think that it helps executives who have perhaps more years of experience rethink how they can engage with a company or approach their job or mm. uh, be a director or an advisor. And I think it also is very positive if you have maybe less experience, not to be intimidated and come in and say, yeah, I, I really feel like I know something about this and for the two to meet. And I'm really excited about that. And I think that could be very powerful going forward. It was really interesting recently working with a friend of ours that was looking to, to make a move his mind was so captured by his experience of what he did. And we had this little conversation of, but, but what are the abstracts of what you're really good at? And mm -hmm. he has like a lot of those, but one of them is creating team. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Where, what do you want to do? <laughs> like, you can write your own ticket now of mm -hmm. what industry like doesn't need someone that can actually pull a team together. And he is incredibly good at that. And he started to expand beyond just what was my vocation and more towards what are actually my abilities and how might those translate in new places? I suspect within 10 years, that won't seem like a strange thing. Like, oh yeah, Joe was in this industry, he came over here. Whereas like, mm -hmm. oh, I made a career switch. Like, well, maybe you didn't make a career switch. Maybe you're just doing team in a different place. This reminds me of the example from the NBA when um, it was unearthed that Shane Battier was an incredibly valuable player. And it He's wasn't a Duke because... person, just to inter interrupt, he is a Duke guy. Okay. And so Bryn picked up on this. <laughs> I No, this is my analytical, unbiased perception totally. and view. Again, so it was unearthed. What an amazing, 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 valuable player he is. It wasn't mm -hmm. showing up in any of the usual statistics numbers that they would look for, mm -hmm. but when they analyzed when the, his team was scoring the most and most productive in that way, he was on the court. 
he was the factor. So looking at the factors in a different way is one thing that we're doing and unearthing um, how how to actually consider what makes a an effective, uh, productive business. I think that makes so much sense. And it's like, it's like the opportunity to always be working on a special project, you know, where you would get picked from all different areas of the organization and come together around a question or an item. And it was always my favorite thing to do because you were released from the burden of everything else. And you could all just come in together and then each contribute their own perspectives. And um, I really, I think that is our way forward. And I agree, Pip, it will seem less exceptional, um, you know, a few years down the road. About 25 years ago, they used to use this, the uh, dream teams would come together off yeah. of the, what, 1992 Olympics team that was truly a dream team. But it was kind of forced. It was kind of, oh, we're a dream team. And like, well, you're not really a dream team. But now you can actually pull together dream teams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think that is awesome because then everybody can work on something new and different. And going back to what Lisa was saying, sometimes you don't know what you're good at or even what your passion is until you have some experiences and start doing it. And you might realize, oh, I'm really bored out of my mind. I love this company and what it stands for, but I'm absolutely bored out of my mind to tears. And what I really enjoy is over here. And, but unfortunately I've spent this many years, so probably it's over for me. I can't even try to explore what I love because I've already spent too much time. Don't even risk it. And I think that's such a shame. And what companies should look at is to find that passion that what someone would be good at and not be afraid to take a chance on them and cultivate them over uh, into a new area, a new function. And, and for, the, for them, the person to also engage. So do you think that this is more likely to happen at something like what Matthias was describing, like a work resort or any of those concepts? Do you think these mesh together or? So I, uh, I want to admit upfront, I, I told you guys, I did have some services background in my experience base. So part, when I listened to that, I'm like, oh boy, you know, yes, that would be nice, but a little impractical. But at the, at the root of what he's saying, and for non-service-based companies, there's, I think there are absolutely amazing opportunities to create that, those experiences together, to not have it be uh, an office location or a work location, but to have people be able to pick. And maybe it's the word resort is, takes me, maybe resort is maybe too far, so I love that idea. And in my industry experience was with fashion companies. And that was kind of a, a modus operandi for the brand was to go, when we traveled, we, we all worked globally. So it was less of a headquarter. I guess we did have a headquarter, but we had the hub and then we would go in each market that we were developing and we would immigrate out. And when we would get to the locale, it was important how that looked for the brand. So a special place was created. Um, certain dinners and experiences were created because they were on brand for the brand that we were trying to infuse into the marketplace. So I think that makes a great idea uh, or a great um, strategy. And then we would invite others to uh, get to know the brand. And hopefully they were interesting people from art and from business and from economics and local politicians. And um, I, love, I love that idea, Pip. It makes everything stronger. I have one last question. 
um, inequality, I think is gonna be critical to understand as an investor or a business creator, how this threat of inequality, which is growing like this as an anthem or all around the world, how you interweave that inside of your company and your business and thoughtful. I'm not just saying, oh, well, we create family dollar stores and we discount everything. What the question I have for you from a position of leadership, over the last 20 years, the phrase minimum wage hasn't been replaced, but it's been complemented by the phrase livable wage. Mm -hmm. You have worked with a lot of organizations that hire people that come and work in stores to sell their stuff at minimum wage, livable wage. When I hear that shift and the type of people that need that are critical inside of an organization to thrive and do this. What does anything about inequality meets living wage, formerly minimum wage, and does anything come to mind for you other than just we have to be nice to people and treat them like humans? Is there something even like rich? Well, I feel that um, you know having purpose in the in the form of employment as one big element where you are independent yourself is hugely important in addressing inequality. And in my industry, um, it engages with a number of uh, members of the workforce in a way that they may not enjoy that independence or it's transient. And I, that transiency, uh, which is measured you know, by attrition, but in our industry is huge. And I have always thought the cost of that was underestimated and perhaps undervalued in terms of um, the whole P&L, the whole, the whole economic model. So for me, I would have no trouble, again, going back to our pyramid, taking some of the funding um, labor costs and letting it trickle down and really creating viable career journeys for people that come in from all different parts of the business, the warehouse, the stores, the distribution, the uh, sourcing, and let them know their value to the company and the wage would emanate. I'd hate, I'd hate to call it that, a wage program. I'd like to call it a you know, career somehow that these people were involved in creating the value for the company because the truth is they are. The CEO doesn't do all of that work. The, the head merchant, can't function without all of this. So I am excited to think about it that way. And I'm hopeful that with the challenges in the market now that it will enable leadership to rethink the investment of investment in the organization at what levels, and then the rate will take care of itself. This conversation started with Jen's observations on the limitations of a classic pyramid hierarchical model and how it's just unlikely that it's adding the most value today. And it ended with an area that may be undervalued and the inequality presented you know, in many retail organizations in particular. So we have an area in the organization where there may be an overvaluation and an area where there may be undervaluation. Just abstracting that out, finding two pockets or ideas where there may be misaligned value is just great fodder for investors who can think through how change might flow through that and how 
they might be able to pinpoint businesses that are ahead of the curve or at least experimenting with how to readjust and realign in order to unearth value. So all of you investors out there, I hope you have a lot of fun with those two potential areas of change that Jen surfaced. Thanks for listening.